New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. When we garden, we partake in an ancient ritual. What we give our attention to is what grows, literally and figuratively. The digging and the pulling, the watering and weeding, the planting and fertilizing of our garden, when done with mindfulness, offers us an opportunity to plant and water the seeds we wish to flourish in our lives and our garden. Through our mindful gardening, we enter a sacred relationship with the land and its inhabitants, and our garden becomes a place of deep connection and belonging. These are the words of our guest, Zakiah Murray, and will serve as the focus of our program today. Zakiah Lorraine Murray is a registered landscape architect, a Masters of Divinity candidate in Maru Seminary at the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment. She teaches meditation classes for the community outreach programs and is a member of the Order of Interbeing in the lineage of Thich Nhat Hanh. She's the author of Mindfulness in the Garden, Zen Tools for Digging in the Dirt. Join us for the next hour as we explore gardening mindfully with our guest, Sakaya Murray. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Sakaya, welcome. Thank you very much, Justine. It's great to be here. It's so great to have you. I would love to have you share something of an experience you had earlier in your life in New Zealand. Can you tell us about what that experience was? Sure. Uh, It started when I met a shaman. I was on a journey with a group of about 10 people. And I was sitting having breakfast in a little diner in New Zealand, and I asked this shaman had just come out of the bush to be with our group, and I asked Ruth, what was Hirani doing before he joined us? Well, she went on with this huge litany of things and beautiful things. He was a trainer in a corporate office. He was a Marine Corps corporal person, you know, somebody who was really high up in the ranks. And so she told me that story, and I just listened, and I didn't. Nothing mentally went on in my mind about it. And about a minute later, I was sobbing to the point where I, could, I couldn't catch my breath. And Ruth looked at me and she said, it's a really big dream, isn't it, dear? And I knew in that moment that I was also meant 
to go into the bush and do a walkabout of my own. And so about two years later, I did just that, and I asked Hirney to join me for the first evening, and he came out and he gave me some general instructions, and I began this walkabout. And I had initially thought it would be going to the ocean and jumping in the water and enjoying the trees and all of this kind of stuff. And it always turns out to be exactly what it's supposed to be and not necessarily what we think it's going to be. And for me, with Hirani's instruction, we had a little check-in point three days into my time there. And he made sure everything was going okay with me. And I said, I'm, I'm ready to go. I'm going to stay for a month and I'm going to be in silence. And, and he gave me some instruction and he said, I want you to learn the land on your belly, on your back, in the dark. And he said, his very last line on the email was, and spirit has given to me that I am to, I'm supposed to come and attack you at some point. I make no apologies for this. And he ended his email. And I had been there for a couple of days, and there were these creatures that were growling at me at night, and I never did see what they were. <laughs> And I was like, okay, how am I going to do this nighttime thing? I can do the belly and the back thing in the day, but how am I going to create this darkness that I need that he's wanting me to know the land in that way? And so I began a very deep walking meditation practice, blindfolded and barefoot in the bush. And initially when I put the blindfold on, my legs were shaking. I mean, it was like, you know, literally having trouble making the movements um, and the things that I ended up having to work through was all, all of the thoughts that were going on in my mind and all of the emotions had to get quiet before I actually became able to be present. And I literally got to the place where I had to keep returning exactly to where I was with each step. And there was a point where I had done, I had been walking for some time, many hours, about three and a half to four hours every day, I would do the blindfolded walking practice. And... I reached out for this particular palm frond that I knew was there, and all of a sudden, I had this very distinct experience that I was walking inside of myself, not inside of like this little body, but inside of myself. And it's, it's the only way I can wrap the English language around the experience. It's not really easy to talk about because there aren't really words there. However, I was aware that I was witnessing and also being completely witnessed at the same time. All fear was absolutely gone, completely absent. And my relationship with nature, you know, I knew that intellectually, that that was true from my studies in seminary and with Thich Nhat Hanh. But this was a visceral body experience of the truth that we all kind of talk about and um, I also knew that it was important for me to then bring that back and share that gift with other people. And the truth of that is that we're not separate from nature? Or what, what is the truth that you were bringing back? Definitely that we're not separate from nature, that there really is only one life that's being lived, and that nature offers us that space in which to go. It's such an unconditional space to go to. It's immediately available to us for that experience. So if if we are feeling separate, then there's that's where the fear comes in. I mean, there's going exactly. to be animals coming up or or things, I know, squishy things we might feel with our feet and, and re- repel from, from that. Uh, exactly. Yes. As a matter of fact, even before I had the experience of that walking inside of myself, 
there was a point where when those animals were coming towards my my space where I was sleeping at night, I remembered a story about Jesus who when he was out in the desert, one of his tests was he went down into this cave and all the lemmings were biting at his feet. And he was trying to figure out how to be with that. And I mean, it's really sort of disturbing to think about little animals biting you. And he just began to radiate love to, to them. And they all ran out of the holes. And so they, every, you know, that was the sign that he had passed that particular test. And I did the same thing, just without even thinking about what I was doing. I just started radiating love. And by the, by the end of my time in the bush, there was no growling. There were, I had, what I would say is I had been accepted as part of the bush. Wow. I, I just I remember camping out in the Sierra at some point and having just being gripped with extraordinary fear I just mm. that a bear was going to get me and I, I couldn't rationalize it away. I couldn't it just would not leave me. And mm. that's that's that feeling of that separateness where I didn't have any meditation technique at that point in my life or anything. Mm-hmm. And I just like was having to stay up all night in this extraordinary fear. I remember it to this day, how, mm-hmm. how deep and just gripping it mm-hmm. was. Uh, and yeah. you're saying we can really get beyond this. And- we can. Yeah, as a matter of fact... Many uh, yogis will go out and be in nature in that way. As a matter of fact, I'm not remembering his name, unfortunately. It's uh, written about in the book called Long Pilgrimage. And he lived to be 137 years old, very ancient being. And part of it was his meditation practice and the energy that he had accumulated in his body, his physicality. But he was to that place where the mountain lions would come down and visit him, and he there was no fear. And because there was no fear, then everybody totally gets along. The, the animals feed on the fear, so um, there wasn't any. So they were they were compatible. I I have to say, I just saw a video on YouTube the other just yesterday of the silverback gorillas walking into a camp. Mm-hmm. And and the babies, the the head guy who was leading it, just was sitting there, kind of huddled, you know. With and somebody was taking a picture of him away from him, and the babies were picking at his hair and <laughs> and, and picking at his ear, and yeah. it was the most extraordinary thing to mm-hmm. to be that one with nature where they. They come to you, as you say, the mountain mm-hmm. lion came down to this ancient yogi. And, totally. Uh, uh, what a thrill <laughs> to, to have that in our yeah, lives. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, I have uh, wild peacocks that live around my house. And last summer, I actually watched a little male peacock grow up with his mom and watched her teach him how to fly up into the trees. I mean... He was maybe four inches tall and was not flying yet, but just starting to fledge just a little tiny bit. And so she taught him how to get up into the tree. And so I I bring that up because I do go out into the woods and I continue to have a walking meditation practice. And when I'm not in the woods, the peacocks have a certain response to me. They sort of keep their distance. They're not, you know, they'll come up, but they won't come really close unless I'm going to offer them food or something, which I don't do a lot of. And when I'm in the woods, walking the way that I walk, when I'm walking in a meditative way and doing my practice, I become a part of them. They don't move away from me. As a matter of fact, I can trail with them just like I'm one of the peacocks with them. 
It's oh. a it's really a beautiful, beautiful. And I thought to myself, there's a story in this, I think. Yes, definitely. <laughs> that I'm walking with the peacocks. <laughs> definitely, definitely. So. Um, and uh, tell me about your work with Thich Nhat Hanh. You've mentioned him. Mm-hmm. Uh, so tell us about what your relationship is with his work. Mm-hmm. Um, I was in my second year of seminary, and a friend of mine invited me to go visit with Thich Nhat Hanh in Massachusetts. So in Stonehill, Massachusetts, I met Thich Nhat Hanh, and I sort of thought it was just because I was already in the stream, you know, because I was in seminary studying Kriya Yoga, actually, and I was meeting this teacher who was doing one thing that we didn't do that much of, which was the walking meditation. So the walking meditation became sort of the strong draw, as well as his deep embodiment of the teachings. It was easy to trust what he was saying because he was completely embodying it. And I think for me, that's also very important in my practice. Not so much the words that I'm saying, but the embodiment in my presence will speak much more to people than anything that I really say, I think. So that was what really got me was his presence and the way that he would walk. He really walked his talk, mm-hmm. literally. <laughs> literally, literally. <laughs> what is mindfulness? What is that practice? That mindfulness is a practice where it's a little bit, it's different than meditation, but it is meditative. Meditation tends to take you from the outside and take you very deeply inward. Mindfulness does the same thing in it centers you, but it has you be aware of everything that's happening and brings you ultimately right into what you're experiencing from my touching this table, cloth covering, you know, to feeling my feet on the ground, to seeing you across the table and really being present to those things. And it often uses the breath to do that. We'll talk more about that in a moment. I'm here with Zakaya Murray, and she's the author of Mindfulness in the Garden, Zen Tools for Digging in the Dirt. My name is Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Zakaya Murray, and she's the author of Mindfulness in the Garden, Zen Tools for Digging in the Dirt. And Zakaya, I'd like to go go back. You were talking about walking meditation and the embodiment of that, and you told the story of being in this walkabout uh, mm-hmm. in the uh, bush of New Zealand. And the question came, comes to me that, when you had that deep experience of being at one, uh, did that did that ever leave? How, how did the how did you how did it 
manifests and where is it now, <laughs> some years later? Mm-hmm. I'm a kinesthetic being to begin with. So for me to have a visceral experience of, of the teachings of oneness, it, it lives in me now. I can simply reflect back on that moment and boom, I drop very deeply into that practice. I feel really blessed that I have that opportunity to be able to drop in that easily. And yes, it, it has stayed with me. And it's also something that it came to me to share with others as I was, when I was walking, I learned to dedicate the walking to other beings. And I specifically remember doing it for children that were struggling for their lives. And that really was the transformation of the walking. One other thing I want to share about that is the very last night that I was out in the bush, I had a very significant dream. It was sort of that in-between time. And I dreamt that I was at staying at my mom and dad's home, my mom and my childhood home. And I walked out and I looked into the sky and I saw this beautiful moon. And then... Um, I called my mom to look with me and there were two moons that were up in the sky. And then I called, I was calling more and more people to be with me and there was a point where there were 12 moons out in the sky and then by the time my dad came, the moon was, comp or the sky was completely filled with moons all over the place. You couldn't really even see the sky for the moon. And I had the fortune of sitting down with a friend who helped me discern what that, what that was. And that was, it was actually also on the night of the equinox. It was Divine Mother calling to me and saying, okay, now it, you've got, you have this truth and I want you to choose me as your mother and to let go of the rest, to let go of anything in the material world, being for you what you think you need. I am that for you. And I cried when he told me that story because I got it. I mean, I really got that that was absolutely true. And he said, you are standing at, you are the one who has been preparing the menorah and you are now standing at the door of the Holy of Holies and it's, it's yours to turn the knob and go in. So what I get from this is this is a true, authentic initiation. Yes. yes. I mean, you were initiated by... By, by nature itself and by the feminine force in nature in some Absolutely. way. Absolutely. Yes. Let's, so how did you then get into, you've, you've, you're doing your walking meditation, you've studied with uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, you've come back from New Zealand and you're bringing this back, and now you're a landscape architect. Now you're, <laughs> you, you've written this book about gardens. Right. And, and so how did you liaison into that? Well, I've been a landscape architect for 22, 23 years. Oh, don't tell me about <laughs> um, I've been a landscape architect since the very beginning. That's how my love of nature was, was uh, expressing itself. And... I had taken a little break from seminary, and I knew immediately that I was to go back into seminary and share my story about the walking meditation. As a matter of fact, that portion of learning is in 
my thesis for my Master's of Divinity, which I just graduated now. Congratulations. But, uh, thank you very much. Yeah. Um, it was quite a feat for me because I, I did have that break and I wasn't sure if that was going to happen. So, um, But it, it definitely was what I was called to do. And they accepted your thesis on the walking meditation is the thesis? Yes, they did. Yes, that's yeah. wonderful. And they were the ones to actually remind me that I had proposed it originally. I didn't realize that. Oh, so. but then you had the experience. Then I had now the experience. it wasn't an intellectual sort of thesis. This was yes. from an embodied thesis. Yeah, I really got that I wasn't going to get to share the experience until it was a literal one for me. I wasn't going to get to talk about it or write about it unless I was actually walking my talk. Walking your talk, walking <laughs> your talk. So um, yeah. let's talk about gardens and sure. gardens in our lives. Um what, what is a piece of advice that you can give us about cultivating garden? Why is it important to, mm. to maybe put our hands in the soil and the dirt a little bit or, or a lot? Gosh, I think that the, the thing that immediately comes to me is just the ancient knowledge that's in the land inherently. And I don't know about you, but when I go out, I, there, there just is so many people tell me, I go to nature to feel spirit. And they don't really know why they're saying that. And it really is because all of the knowledge is in the soil. It's in our souls. It's in our cells, rather. And the reason that is, is because we are made completely of what the earth is made of. So we're making this communion without having to be intellectual about it. It's just happening. So when we're touching the soil, you know, there's this exchange that happens. And it, it's the same exchange that happened when I was walking around outside. People are having it. They just don't they just don't necessarily realize they're having it in the moment. Well, I know for me, when I am in nature in some way, uh, even if it's in the city in, in a park or something, it's easier for me to center myself. Mm -hmm. it, it's much easier than it is inside my own home. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I might light a candle and do all of that, but... It just comes really easily once I'm out in nature. It just it just falls into it. Yeah, nature is that unconditional mirror of being. Um, that is one of the gatas that I've written about in Mindfulness in the Garden. And that is what it offers us, is that unconditional container of being. It's the master of being. And if you want to learn how to simply be, go out into nature. And when you say gata... Your your book is filled with these gatas, and say mm -hmm. what they are. They are short poems. You could also even call them short prayers. They're what we do to keep ourselves present with the mind. So we can be present in lots of ways, but often our minds are running a show of their own, right? So our thoughts are here or there, not necessarily right where we are. So the gata helps us to come back to immediately what we're doing, and they're usually very simple, very short and they are connected with the breath. I want to give our listeners just a, an example. Uh, this is uh, one of them, and I kind of wrote next to it an earth prayer, and it's, um, mm. I entrust myself to my garden. My garden entrusts herself to me. Digging down reverently, I offer these words. Dear earth, I am here for you. Mm. I was so moved by that one that mm, that to to say you know to actually say to the earth I am here for you mm -hmm. because the earth is so here for us yeah yeah actually it's a that comes because of my relationship with the earth it's so close and it's so reverent 
And I think that it's really clear in the book that that's true. I have a practice that I have with my partner where when the other person is suffering, uh, we will say, my, my darling, I can see that you're suffering and I want you to know that I'm here for you. And so that practice came into my practice with the garden and with the earth. And, and that's where you can feel that sort of tenderness because it's something that I do, I really do in my life. And so I also do with the earth. And you, you suggest that when, when we read these uh, prayers or gatas, that, that we, um, we breathe with them. Mm-hmm. Can you describe that? Yes, usually with the, each gata has four lines. The first line would be read on the in-breath, the second line with the out-breath, third line with the in-breath, and the fourth line with the out-breath. And then once we are sort of in that rhythm, then we might take like a single word from each sentence that would tie with our breath in the same way. And it has this way of once we have this really felt sense of it, then that word just continues to sort of center and drop us into the present moment. Beautiful, beautiful. Let's talk a little bit about about gardening. And one of the advices, one of the pieces of advice that you give us, um, you talk about weeding in the garden. Uh, let's talk about weeds and gardens. Sure. Uh, so let's let's give a, give that a little little absolutely time here. All right. Well, this comes from very direct experience, not only from my childhood, but this. Mindfulness in the Garden comes came to me, the opportunity to write it came to me at a time when I had been laid off for about two years as a landscape architect. And I had decided to dedicate my time and work, not so much to just making money, but to something that I really believed in. And so I was working on a wetland preservation restoration project with a friend of mine. And one of the things that I had to do was I had to pull Italian thistle for hours and hours and hours on end. And the relationship that developed between myself and that thistle was profound. As a matter of fact, without even knowing it, I started saying, I am going to write a book about the wisdom of weeds. And then later on, this opportunity showed up with Parallax Press. And, um, you know, learning how to be with the thorns that are on the thistle, to hold them tightly enough so that I could pull the thistle out, but not too tightly so that I wouldn't break the thistle off. It was so profound that um, it became a very deep meditative practice. And, you know, I had prickles on my arms and bruises from the thorns, and I was really learning how to just really be with them and how to be tender and loving, even though I was removing them simply because they weren't natives. That was the only reason they were being removed. And I remember um, I let it become a very deep practice of forgiving myself. And I would, um, for whatever I might be holding against myself, I didn't even necessarily know what those things were that I was forgiving myself for, but I would you know, I would forgive myself and I would pull and I would, you know, and, and let that connection and the thorns remind me of the difficulty in, in life. And um, it was a beautiful practice and it was painful too, but I was right in the thick of it. I stayed really present with it and very, very valuable. You talk about uh, anger and mm-hmm. and weeding uh, to, to, to notice when we're we're just being angry uh, sure. at the weeds that are kind of <laughs> snuffing out the plants that we mm-hmm. prefer to grow. So. Right. Yeah, anger is a, a tough emotion for many of us to deal with. And I think that when we're weeding, it's a really great time to work with it. 
if we can allow the weeds to symbolically represent the aspects of ourselves, the habitual pattern of being angry that we have in ourselves, and just tenderly being with it. Because if you're too harsh with a weed, you're going to give it more opportunity to grow. I mean, oxalis has little bulbs at the end of its roots that if you just tear them off and don't pay attention to what you're doing, they can certainly uh, continue to grow more. It stimulates them to be... It stimulates them more. Yeah. So we want to be watchful for what we're watering in ourselves. That's sort of the way that I hold it when I'm practicing is, am I watering my anger while I'm weeding or am I watering my compassion? Right. That, that are, Am I growing more weeds or exactly. of anger or am I growing mm-hmm. more compassion and loving kindness? Yes. Right. So... Um, so you have to be really patient with that. We'll yes. talk more about that in just one moment. I'm here with Zakaya Murray. She's the author of Mindfulness in the Garden, Zen Tools for Digging in the Dirt. My name is Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Zakaya Murray, and we're talking about mindfulness and gardening, um, and they seem to they go together. Um, let's and we were talking about weeds. Let's also talk about those critters that we that share our gardens. You talk about mm-hmm. them as being there are local critters. There are locals that have been there for a long, long time, but maybe Absolutely. we don't want them so much. And Okay, how do we deal with the critters? The butterflies and ladybugs, oh, we really like, but there are others right. that we are not so happy with. So mm-hmm. talk about that. Yes, there's a, a part in the book where I talk about, like, whose land is this, really? And, I mean, we really have encroached on so many of the the animals and the creatures, that this was land that they used to have uninterrupted, and we we are actually the interruption. So how do we learn to hold that? And I have a story that touched me very deeply about Thich Nhat Hanh, and I don't have all the facts down exactly, but I think that the, the theme of the story carries, so I want to share it. Thich Nhat Hanh was approached by a young man who worked in a nuclear plant, and he had just started practicing the five mindfulness trainings, which is a part of what Thich Nhat Hanh practices. And part of it is like harmlessness and truthfulness and, and those kinds of things. And he was very sincere. And he approached Thich Nhat Hanh and he asked him, should I quit my job? Point blank. And Thich Nhat Hanh sat for a moment and paused before he answered the young man. And he said, no, it would be better for you to stay in your job at the nuclear plant and practice your mindfulness than to have someone come in and take your position who will not be as mindful as you will be. The point that this draws me to is that it's not so much about the decisions that we have to make or what we actually do but how we make them and who we're being while we're making them. 
So there will be times when we can give the gophers all kinds of alternatives. We can give them a portion of our garden, which actually works really well. We can give them a portion that's really easy to get and make everything else hard to get to. They're going to go for the easy stuff. That's just nature. Or there are times when it's just not compatible, and we may have to make a different decision about whether or not the gopher can stay. We just don't have the space, whatever. What becomes really the most important thing about that distinction and that decision is our discernment and how we are being. Who are we being when we're, we're making that decision? We might then go, if we have to exterminate something on our property, we might go then and support that livelihood somewhere else where it actually can thrive. And so we can give back in that way. Um, another thing that Thich Nhat Hanh, I know, has done, there was a person who had been in the war and he had killed many children and, and women, and he wanted to, he had taken many lives. And Thich Nhat Hanh suggested to him, you know, obviously he can't ever change that, but he could go and be supportive and do service work for children and become a mentor and things like that. So um, there are ways that we can give back without, you know, when we have to make a certain decision, how do we do it? Who are we being while we're doing it? Are we aware of the life? You know, how are we holding that in our hearts? And then how do we give back if indeed we do have to take life? How do we give life back? You also suggest something that surprised me, but I could understand it once I read it, um, about hand-watering your mm. garden. So yeah. talk about the importance of that. Yeah, the hand-watering, it brings us like right into the experience. We get to actually watch how our garden is growing. It slows us down. I think that that's the key. Um, it slows our pace down. It brings us back to a time that's not moving so fast and everything's not so automated. We're actually there watching the water trickle out of the hose and hit the plants, and we can pay attention to how much water we're giving, where is it going, how is it actually working, is something drinking it right up, or is it just puddling right around the, the base. We learn a lot about our garden just by slowing down at in that way, and so it feels important to me to... Um, to pay attention, to give ourselves that opportunity to become mindful and pay attention in that way. I'm just thinking when I was living in a place that, that I was caring for a lot of garden space and made a garden uh, down below with roses, and mostly it was flowers, but then up above the same. And I worked really hard to get all these drip systems in place so I wouldn't have to think about it, so mm -hmm. that they would be on timers and they would just do it. And when I read... About hand-watering, I could see, oh, all right, keep the drip system, but at least go and have this communion. It's yes. really a communion that you're mm -hmm. having with the land Indeed. that you have a relation, you're developing relationship. Exactly. So as I was talking about watching how things are growing and how they're thriving or not thriving, it slows us down to that point where we do have that relationship. We are definitely communing, paying attention and giving our love directly. What about when things uh, don't thrive? Uh, what about that, when seeds don't grow? You might have a, a little reading that... I'm yeah, I'd be sure. happy to do a if little reading would, on that section, if you sure. give a little reading yeah, on when things, uh, pop in there. when things don't grow. And mm -hmm. 
So yes, this is the gatha called When Seeds Don't Grow. And it goes like this. Sometimes, even with mindfulness, my garden fails to thrive. With breath, mind, and hands free, the seed of my equanimity emerges. Gardening is a great exploration and adventure, and no matter how thoughtful and careful we may be, it's unavoidable that some aspects of our vision and dream for our land may not thrive. Our failures often tell us more about ourselves than any success ever will. The ego, cunning as it is, can gracefully disguise itself as even-mindedness in the sugary sweet praise that lies in the wake of our success. However, the depth and truth of who we really are reveals itself perhaps more in our response to our challenges. Obstacles and challenges in our garden keep us humble. They're good medicine, helping us to become more authentic. When taken in, proper, in the proper way, challenges can snap us back to our senses. Learning, specifically learning from adverse conditions, keeps us alive, growing, and it keeps us real. Mm. So just to reiterate, you're saying challenges really... Uh, t- we learn more from that than than the successes. So so often, <laughs> unfortunately, unfortunately, <laughs> how how we respond to challenges. That and you you say somewhere in the book, uh, the only control we have really is how we respond to it. Absolutely. And can you say more about that? I sure can. Um, I think that when we meet a challenge, it's actually completely indicating to us that we have an opportunity to learn and that we're on the verge of growing. I actually really stress this a lot. I teach nine to 12 year olds Aikido, a martial art based on harmony and the harmonious resolution of conflict. So rather than harming the person back, you actually learn to work with their energy and then settle the situation down by becoming the center and helping them understand that they really don't wanna be doing what they're doing. It's seeing the attack as a missed direction, misguided attempt on connection. And so when we stop seeing the other person as other, we then can blend with them and work with them and see, oh, they're actually trying to connect with me. They just aren't being very skillful. Ooh, that's a biggie. That's a whole new reframing, isn't it? Mm -hmm. That when people are acting aggressive towards us, and and maybe mostly, I think it's verbally in in, sure. in our culture. It's we're mm-hmm. not really attacked. We're attacked daily by verbal mm-hmm. uh, abuse in in many many, many forms. Whether it's in a grocery store or, or somebody driving in a car next mm-hmm. to us, we can feel their aggression. And, sure. Uh, so it's a you're saying it's really an attempt to connect. Absolutely. It's just being very unskillful at it, right? And when when I'm working with the kids in the class, I actually encourage them to move towards those situations, to get closer to them. And that's actually how we stay safe, too, in a martial sense, too, is to move closer, to let ourselves be uncomfortable and feel that edge, and then continue to be with it until it's not there anymore. I mean, we really grow when we do that. So I, when they're frustrated and learning how to do their forward roles or whatever it is, I encourage them to stay with that side that's the most frustrating because then they'll, they'll overcome that. And not only will that side get better, but the other side will get even better too. So it's just this way of being with challenge, conflict, and frustration, if you will, in a different way. 
Well, exactly. Well, there, there you go. So, um, tell me in in your garden. Do you have a big garden? Do you have a small garden? Where I have a very it? small garden. Uh, how big is it? Does it's it just sort of tiny, right out in the front of my my house. I actually rent the cottage where I am, and it took me actually writing the book to begin to take real ownership over the land that was there, <laughs> even though I'm so connected and I work in lots of other people's gardens. But then I started taking some ownership, and it feels really good. So it, do you grow things in your front yard? I mean, it's mm-hmm. not just a lawn, I assume. No, it's not. Yeah, it's not. What is it? Mm-hmm. Like, right now, it. it's a combination of ornamental grasses, some perennials, and also some herbs. So they're, And they're all pretty much native to the, the yeah, area. Exactly. So mm-hmm. wh- how, why does that work better than other, other kinds of plants there? Well, certainly natives work better because they, they don't require as much. They won't need as much water. They're going to be more attuned to the soil and the conditions that they're being placed in, so they're going to thrive. And that's just sort of makes it easier on both the earth and on the, the gardener. You know, that relationship becomes easier when they're, they're natives. Right, exactly. And do you, and you hand water all the time, or do you have some sort of watering system? When do you do a combination? <laughs> Mine's small enough I can hand water. Yes. So, but I totally yes. get you know when people have large gardens, just even to take a portion of that large garden and hand water it. Right. Would do the be the practice. You also uh, talk about pruning, <clears throat> uh, and mm-hmm. that's for a beginner. I mean, I know that my roses when I had roses. I I was forced to prune. I would I learned kind of a little bit about pruning because they just wouldn't they would just get all scraggly if I didn't mm-hmm. when the new season would come. So after the frost was totally over, then I would prune them back, and they they were pretty happy with it. But that was hard to learn. It so, is hard to prune back that hard. I I learned it myself, probably the most vividly when a friend of mine asked me to go out in the backyard and prune her Cecil Bruner rose. And this rose had gone crazy. It was growing up over the top of like an eight-foot fence in the neighbor's garage. And I was like, Lynn, how am I ever going to wrap myself around this? And she said, just go in and go hard. And so I did. I literally was crawling underneath the canes of the rose, figuring out where they were going, watching when I snipped it down here, what was going to happen. And then, once it was loose, how were they going to extricate it out from the rest of the canes, right? Oh, so wow. it's a literal story in this one particular gata that's very truthful. Well, we'll go to that gata in just one moment. I'm here with Sakaya Murray. She's the author of Mindfulness in the Garden, Zen Tools for Digging in the Dirt. My name is Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. Thank you. 
I'm here with Sakaya Murray, and we're talking about gardens. And we are really, we were just talking about pruning. Mm-hmm. And I'd love for you to share uh, your um, little short poem about pruning. Yes, it's a gardening prayer for pruni- pruning. It's called The Point of Pruning. When I prune, I remove the old. In its place, new life grows. And one thing I'd like to read about that. For me, when we're gardening, the thorns on the weeds and on the roses remind me of my own stories, the things that I have going on in my mind. And so the inner turmoil that happens in our minds when we don't understand the true nature of the situation are like the thorns of the rose. The more we move around inside the thoughts of our story, the more we get caught up on their edges and thorns. If we continue in this way for long, movement by movement, the sweatshirt that was meant to protect us gets tangled up on the old growth of our preconceived ideas. Hardly able to move, we miss the present moment altogether. With our mindfulness, however, we can prune our attention away from our stories. Bravely pruning hard into our old growth, we can remove the old canes and thorns of our wrong perceptions and misunderstanding opening ourselves to the vast space of the present. Mm, beautiful. Sakaya, let's talk about trees. Uh, sure. In the very beginning of the book, you talk about trees. And um, so what can you tell us about the importance of trees and the, mm. our spiritual connection with them? Trees are very special beings in my mind. And they... The way that they are rooted to the ground, they're connecting us to the earth, their trunks are upright, reminding me of our spine, and then the branches that reach out up into the air and into the heavens, sort of like our consciousness that expands exponentially out into the sky. And we are in absolute direct relationship with the trees. We're breathing with them. The air that we exhale is their inhale, and their inhale and their exhale is our inhale. And it's just, we're inseparable from them. And I remember there was a point where I was out in this white pine forest that a friend of mine's father had planted, and they were doing some tree farming that they would then replace. But they had pruned all of the pines to about six feet tall, and I was probably about five foot four or so at that time, so I could stand upright underneath all these pines. And so there was like this ceiling, and I remember at one point... I was just standing there, and there was this kind of silence and presence. It was really palpable. And now whenever I'm standing in trees, I'll always stop to, to feel that same feeling, and that it's the presence of those trees. And I think the other thing that comes to me is just how natural and organic trees are, and they just grow, and they, they, they are sort of a symbol of being with a capital B for me. And um, I have a gatha that's called Looking at a Tree that I would like to share with you. Please. Looking at a tree. Looking deeply at a tree, I feel its presence. In its stillness, I find my true being. And then I have some commentary here, and I want to share a little story about this next part that I'm going to read. It has to do with the way that nature is sort of that unconditional reflection of beauty and of simply being. And and this comes from the close relationship that we have with 
maybe a partner or a very close friend. It's the only other person in our life that we will let see us with our bedhead, you know. <laughs> and it, this sort of reminds me of that. It's sort of where the the fun and the love came for from not only from the trees, but from my own experience of being loved unconditionally. So it goes like this. The wind-blown architecture of a cypress tree growing at the ocean's edge does not judge how our hair looks in the morning. Instead, it can remind us of the elegant beauty that appears when we allow nature to sculpt us. The clouds in the sky do not begrudge us our moods, but instead they model for us a way to simply be with what is and express it completely as they move from bright billowy white to the soggy drab gray foretelling of rain's arrival. Our tears become the rain falling from their tender underbellies. The wily pumpkin stealthily growing on top of our fence does not complain that it's not on the ground with its brothers and sisters, but grows courageously where it finds itself. Nature just is, and it teaches us how to simply be. Beautiful, beautiful. That reminds me, too, of something that you've written, and also I think that Thich Nhat Hanh wrote in his introduction mm. to your book. I mean, it's how wonderful that, that he yeah. was able to give you a beautiful introduction. And he talks about, and you talk about, our um, interconnectedness, how, how we're... We are all made up of rain and clouds yes. and minerals and sun and all of this. The tree mm-hmm. that you mentioned and you read so beautifully about and, and ourselves. Can you say Absolutely. something about that? Sure. It comes to me to share with you, people often ask me to talk about sort of the beginning of this book. <laughs> and then as I began to reflect on that, it was very difficult for me to actually find a beginning. And, and the reason I say that is because this book, the seeds for this book were planted in me when I was with my mom and dad walking around in our gardens and looking at the birds and talking about the trees. It was a very, very early love. you know. And, and I was a part of them before I even came into this particular form, you know, being inside of my mom. There's all kinds of ways to talk about that. And then we're all made up of, like you said, rainwater, minerals, and every conversation, every experience that I've ever had is inside of this book. So there's really not a way to say that there's an actual beginning place, and how can I say where it ends as well. So there's that interconnectedness of all of life, because as I place this book in someone else's hands, then it starts to live inside of them. You know, they're touching the parchment that came from trees, and there's water in the pages, and the clouds are in the pages too, if we have, we take the time to look in that way with those kinds of eyes. And so that is, to me, how interconnectedness, that's sort of the science that starts to feed into science and spirituality come together really strongly when we start talking about water and minerals and how everything's made up of the same thing. And that takes us to compost. Compost. <laughs> you know, yes. because there, there mm-hmm. it is in the compost. Here's the rose and the flower. And then the, so talk about compost. <laughs> it's so important. Right. You know, that's another practice of mindfulness, to see the compost in the rose and to see the rose in the compost. 
I had a really direct experience with the compost. I was working at a retreat, and each one of us was given a little something to do in exchange for our time there on the land, and I was assigned to take care of the compost. Well, I thought, wow, what a great assignment. I can really get to be with my relationship with compost. And I was feeling pretty comfortable about it because I had been doing this work of seeing the rose and the compost and the compost and the rose, and I was holding it like that. And I walk out and I put the leftover remains from our breakfast into the compost and I latch the the compost container that's one of those big ones, big metal round ones that you churn with a handle and I start to churn it and just as it gets to where the door is on the bottom I realize that I did not close the door all the way and so there I stood with compost everywhere and I really got to be with my initial response to the compost and it was kind of one of being drawing back and being repulsed. And that takes me to another story when I was in the bush in New Zealand where Hirani, the shaman, had said he was going to come and attack me. And, you know, so I was sort of preparing for this big attack, if you will. And the whole time I'm walking in the, in the bush, sometimes on my hands and knees, sometimes on my back, I was getting to know the land with this blindfold on. And not until the very last day did I ever crawl through feces. And all of a sudden, on the last day, I had feces on my hands one time, and that time I, I really felt that repulsion to push it away. And then a little later in that same session where I was doing my practice, I again came across the feces, and I had it on my hands this time, and I had a I realized in that moment that I had a, an opportunity to respond in a, you know, it was up to me how I would respond to that. And I realized on the walkabout that every time I had learned an important lesson, there was a way in which nature was showing up by dropping a feather of some sort. And so that became sort of a ongoing theme. And I would take that feather and I would wrap it up into a piece of paper or cloth, whatever I had, so I could keep it. And in that moment, I found myself wrapping up the feces in the same way. And I realized that I had entered into a sacred ritual with the feces, just like I had with the feather. Oh, so there was no judgment, good there or bad. No. Yeah. And, I, and then I also began to see that, that the community inside of the bush was beginning to use the trails, the pathways that I was using. I was literally, that was a sign of being, like they were sort of marking territory, but they were also recognizing that I had been there. I was starting to become a part of things. So when you say community, you mean the livingness around. Yeah, not, the not, not human community, but no. the, yeah. Yeah, I was the Beautiful. only person there. Beautiful. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, your, your stories are fascinating. Thank and you. we can just go on and on, but we've <laughs> run out of time. Sakaya, I want to thank you so much for being thank with you. us today. Mm-hmm. My pleasure, Justine. Thank you so much. You're welcome. I've been speaking with Zakaya Murray. Uh, she spells her name Z-A-C-H-I-A-H, Zakaya Murray. Her book is Mindfulness in the Garden, Tool, uh, Zen Tools for Digging in the Dirt. And um, you can go to Parallax Press uh, to find any information on her, parallax.org, P-A-R-A-L-L-A-X, parallax.org. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. My name is Justine Willis-Toms. 
You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3461. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions. Thank you.